There's a famous study done with all the appropriate controls and statistical methods. It was done, it took place at Princeton Seminary in 1970. And the study involved 40 seminarians. And the 40 were split into two groups of 20, each of which had no contact with the other group. The stated purpose of the experiment was to see how the students could speak without any preparation time. So one group was told that they were to give a talk on possible careers that they could pursue with their degree. The other group was told that they were to expound on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then they were sent immediately in small clusters, a couple at a time, staggered by a couple minutes each, across campus, the other side of the campus, where the talks were to be delivered. Some were told that they're already late and that they need to go fast. Some were told they needed to hurry a little bit to be on time. And some were told you have a couple minutes, but you should head out now. It was winter. It was about five degrees outside. There was a man planted in an alleyway that all the students had to pass through. He was slumped over. He was coughing. He was inadequately dressed for the cold. So of the 40 students unknowingly being tested, only 16 offered any kind of help at all, and most of them just grabbed somebody else and said, hey, take a look at this guy, I'm in a hurry. Just a couple actually stopped to see if the man was okay. When they did the study and they did the statistical analysis, there was no correlation, zero, between those who were to preach on the Good Samaritan and those who stopped in any fashion to help. There was a direct correlation, though, between those in the greatest hurry and a failure to help. Direct correlation between those in the greatest hurry and the failure to help. It's a damning indictment, this little study, on our human self-centeredness and the way that our busyness prevents us from responding to the pain and misery of the world, perhaps all the more so since these were aspiring ministers. So, we come today to the easiest of all the parables to understand and the hardest of all to put into practice. And what is, I think, and if you've been following this series of parables, you, you realize these parables of Jesus are provocative. They're intentionally in your face and offensive in many cases. This one, as familiar as it is, is the most offensive of all. The parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. It's a text which is so familiar that we think we know its lesson. And it's, it's required of us, I think, to, 
to have ears to hear this most provocative text afresh. So we're going to make three points here. The lawyer, the lawyer, the parable, and the application. The lawyer, the parable, and the application. The lawyer, the parable, and the application. So first, the lawyer a lawyer, here, which, here this means a, a teacher of the Torah, a teacher of the law. In verse 25, he stands up to put Jesus to the test. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers, what, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer gives an excellent response in verse 27. It's a response which Jesus himself gives. When Jesus is asked about what's the greatest of all the commandments. In fact, the lawyer may be echoing back what he's heard Jesus say here. Right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is straight out of the great creed of Israel. In Deuteronomy 6, confessed by all Jews in the synagogue. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God. And then, as Jesus himself did, he appends Leviticus 19 and says, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's an excellent answer. And Jesus praises the answer in verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. And then he adds the command, do this and you will live. You know, to many of us, it seems like Jesus gives the wrong answer here. To many evangelicals, it's, I mean, Jesus, shouldn't Jesus have said something like this? Shouldn't he have said, well, to receive eternal life, you have to make a personal decision for me, and you have to accept me as Lord and Savior. I mean, doesn't Jesus understand his own gospel? What's wrong with him? How come he doesn't talk like we do? Now, the usual way this is handled is to say, well, Jesus is holding out the impossible command to keep the law perfectly, to show the lawyer that salvation must be by grace. But that will not work here. For one thing, Jesus tells the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Of course Jesus expects people to believe the gospel of the kingdom which he preaches. Of course. His whole ministry testifies to that. His point here is that those who follow him must love God with their whole being and their neighbor as themselves. As we've seen over and over and over and over in the parables, Jesus cannot say everything at once. He just focuses on the point he's trying to make. He leaves the other stuff aside. So the phrase, you have answered correctly, means just what it says. If anything, the rest of this parable, this passage, is going to confirm that Jesus is not playing some sort of game here with the lawyer. So the, but the lawyer has an instinct, though. This isn't the end of the matter, of course. He has an instinct that this commandment does not mean the same thing for him and his first century Jewish colleagues as it does for Jesus. So he says in verse 29, seeking to justify himself, which probably means to win a debating point of some sort, to undermine Jesus' teaching, he asks, and who is my neighbor? 
Now, what's behind this question? And we looked at it last week somewhat. Is Jesus' apparent fast and loose handling of the holiness code in the law? Jesus eats with outcasts and, and sinners and lepers and prostitutes. Jesus seems to be subverting the distinction between good and bad, between clean and unclean. And so the lawyer thinks, you know, I better press this question a little bit. I want to know just who constitutes my neighbor because this Jesus guy seems to think people are neighbors that I'm not so sure are neighbors. See, we have good evidence that Jews felt that they should show mercy to their family and to other Jews and even perhaps to resident aliens, but they often felt there was no need to show mercy to those outside of Israel or outside the covenant. And so the lawyer, he wants to put a concrete limit on his love and his neighborly compassion. He wants the friends and family neighbor plan, which is the neighbor plan most Americans work on. Friends and family, that's cool, but we need some, we need some boundaries. The lawyer's question reminds me, I used to uh, teach at a Christian school Old Testament, and, and we'd be going over some passage, and someone would ask a question. And so I'd do some background explanation, write stuff all over the board. And invariably, when I was done, those of you who teach, I'm sure, can appreciate this, one of the students would ask, Mr. Sherr, do we have to know all that stuff you just said for the test? And I say, yes, yes, if I say it, if it's on, yes. So the lawyer wants to know, is the, who's going to be on the neighbor test, right? Who is on the, I want the friends and family neighbor plan, and I want to know which neighbors are going to be on the test. And it's in this context that Jesus tells the famous parable. And that's our second point, the parable itself. So that's the lawyer. Now here's the parable. Jesus replies in verse 30. The question is, of course, you know, who's my neighbor? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. The robbers strip him. They beat him. They leave and they leave the man half dead. <laughs> this road is a real road. Right. Jesus is not making the geography up here. The road from Jerusalem down to Jericho is a notoriously dangerous road. It drops 3,500 feet over the course of 17 miles. It's a barren road. It has many steep cliffs on either side. It was a well-known hiding place for bandits. Everybody knows this road. Notice <coughs> the beaten man <coughs> is anonymous. We would probably assume that he was a Jew. And Jesus' hearers certainly would assume this. But there are two ways to identify um, nationality in this world. One was by clothing, and this man is stripped. And the other's by dialect. And this man's virtually unconscious. So there he lies, on this treacherous road, an anonymous man. Almost surely a Jewish man, though, bleeding to death on the side of the road. And we also know that at this time, a great many of the priests and Levites lived in Jericho. Maybe 50% of them. 
And they would come to Jerusalem because they would have rotating terms of service at the temple. And they would, and they would come to Jerusalem for their service and they would go back home by this route. So the story is true to life about priests and Levites on this road. So in verse 31, a priest, and here the priest is almost surely returning from his temple service, where I'm sure they had wonderful speakers and great music and an uplifting conference. And he's going down the road. He saw the man, he passes by on the other side. It's not that he didn't see him. He saw him just fine. But he doesn't go anywhere near him. He's on the other side of the road. And the Levite, also returning from the temple, from the house of God, he does the same thing. He walks, you know, go to the house of God, walks out, walks right past the guy. You're at Princeton Seminary, they send you out, you walk right past the guy. So the Levite does the same thing. Now, the text says nothing at all about the motives of, the, of these two religious leaders. Yet, it is almost certain that they're driven by priestly purity concerns. That's the question behind the neighbor question. So, for a priest to touch a dead corpse, and this man looks like he may be dead, or even to touch blood, would make the priest ceremonially Unclean. It is really important to see this to understand the priest and the Levite's actions here. In fact, many of Jesus' hearers would have commended the priest and the Levite at this point for their concern for the law. Moderns miss this parable because we know what the parable is about. We, we tend to miss this point. You can't touch a corpse if you're a priest, and you can't touch blood. So in their case, seeing the man, seeing him, leads immediately to caution. And it's a scripturally based caution. After all, if they help and they become unclean, their purification ritual takes one week the next time they go up to the temple. And it requires that they buy an expensive animal for the purification sacrifice. So that if they help the man out, it's not only going to be the loss of one week's pay, but it's going to be a financial hardship on their families. And so the, the purity concerns here, they dovetail with this natural human instinct for self-preservation. The robbers could attack them as well if they try to help. I mean, no one stops to pick up strange hitchhikers in the inner city. It goes against every sound, prudent rule of concern for yourself and your family. Besides, besides, there are beaten men on this road all the time. What, I'm going to help this guy and not help the guy who's going to be here on Tuesday? There's always that homeless guy at the corner of 9W and 84 with the signs. So, we need to see this string of instinctive, biblical, financial, 
family-based rationalizations if we're going to see ourselves in the priest and the Levite. Right? These aren't necessarily bad people. They've got their reasons, and some of them come right from the Torah. I mean, would you help a guy on the side of the road if simply touching him would cost you a couple of weeks' pay? Because that's what it would have done to the priest and the Levite. So, surely one of the hard things, and there are many hard things, but one of the hard things Jesus is saying here is that genuinely human and deeply religious motivations can actually get in the way of being a neighbor. I hope you got that. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the rationalization factory of which we're all constituted in the inner being. Genuinely human concerns for self-preservation. Genuine financial concerns. Genuine biblical concerns. They all stack up and they can thwart the ability to simply be a neighbor. If we think it's, well, these people were just callous, then we've missed the whole point. We've let ourselves off the hook way too easily. But this parable is about to get even more scandalous. There are a lot of stories in Jesus' day that involved a priest and a Levite and an ordinary Jew or an ordinary Israelite. These stories were common. Sort of, it sounds like a joke, but it's true. There were stories this way. And that's who you would expect to appear next in this story. An ordinary Jew. So you have a priest, you have a Levite. Then you expect an ordinary Jew to appear. And what Jesus would be doing is he would be trading on the anti-priestly, the anti-clerical sentiment among ordinary Israelites who, believe it or not, sometimes didn't like their priests. And so that's what we expect. But that, of course, is not what happens. In verse 33, a Samaritan appears. Now, there was a long history of hatred between Jews and Samaritans. This is not just an outsider. This hatred is long-standing. It goes back to the 8th century B.C., 800 years of hatred. In the 8th century B.C., Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, that's where Samaritan comes from. They're from Samaria. They went into exile at the hands of the Assyrian Empire. And then what happened was the Assyrians would repopulate the north later, and Samaritans who made their way back or who maybe stayed in the area would end up intermarrying with pagan peoples. And so the Samaritans were viewed as as half-breed, racially impure, compromised, semi-pagan Jews. This was by design, by the way, in the Assyrian Empire's policy to mix the Samaritans back with the other races in the empire and repopulate them. So the, the hatred that the Jews have for the Samaritans is an intense racial hatred, and it's a religious hatred. The Samaritans set up an alternative temple at Mount Gerizim, and they condemned the temple in Jerusalem. 
And in 128 BC, not that long before Jesus, the Jews destroyed, they went up and destroyed the Samaritan temple. And only one generation before Jesus, the Samaritans came to Jerusalem and defiled the temple in Jerusalem by spreading human bones all around it so the Jews couldn't worship there. The Samaritans accepted only the Torah, only the first five books of Moses, and they rejected all the subsequent books. They viewed themselves as the true Jewish remnant. Isn't this how it always is? <laughs> Where one, one group says you're the true, you're, you're corrupt, semi-pagan apostates, and the other group says, no, we're the true remnant. Jews, this hatred is so intense that Jews would generally, in Jesus' day, travel on the other side of the Jordan River to go north. So they'd cross the river and then go north so they wouldn't have to go into Samaritan territory. They didn't want to step foot in Samaria. That's why it's so radical that Jesus ends up in Samaria talking to a Samaritan woman. Not only is he in their territory, he's talking to a woman. Not only is he in their territory talking to a woman, he's in their territory talking to a woman alone in public in the middle of the day. Jesus himself was called a Samaritan and demon-possessed in the same breath by his Jewish enemies in John chapter 8. And just prior to this text, here in Luke 10, if you go back one chapter in Luke 9, Jesus visits Samaria. He's rejected, and what do his disciples want to do? They want to call down fire from heaven. They want to burn the Samaritans alive. Who would do anything so barbaric? For which Jesus sternly rebukes them. And I haven't given you the half of it because we don't have the time. But the animus here is raw and long-standing. And it has deep roots in your view of Scripture and the temple and the covenant. It's historical. It's racial. It's religious. It has to do with the land. It's repeatedly erupted in violence. And Jesus picks the Samaritan. Now, to feel the force of this in our day, and I know it's impossible, but try to imagine, just try to imagine never, ever, ever having heard this parable. Or this parable never having materialized in the West. That would mean there would be no good Samaritan hospitals. There'd be no Samaritan ministries. There'd be no sanitizing of the very word Samaritan. In fact, good Samaritan is an oxymoron. And that's how you would think of it. It's because of this text that the word Samaritan is like, uh, you know, if, if it's bad at all, it's a little strange, but it really is kind of a good word. It resonates relatively well. But imagine you've never heard of it. And then some unordained outsider stands up on the floor of the PCA General Assembly. And he tells a story. And he includes in the place of the priest, the moderator of the PCA General Assembly. Then in the place of the Levite, he singles out your favorite Reformed Conference speaker. 
an impeccable theologian whose ministry has benefited the church greatly and who gave a magnificent plenary address the night before. And they both passed by on the other side of the road discussing the niceties of the doctrine of justification and the authority of Scripture. Then the speaker says, now remember you've never heard the parable before. Then he says a female minister from a corrupted liberal denomination, an open and practicing lesbian, stops and shows the man compassion. That's the parable with the sting that Jesus intends. And you know what? That's not even quite close enough because it doesn't have the, histori- the, the history of violence and the land and the scriptural debates and stuff. It would be better, perhaps, to see the parable told to a Jewish audience where Jesus makes a Muslim imam the hero. This is as dangerous and as provocative and as offensive a parable as any Jesus has told. Kenneth Bailey is a New Testament scholar who's a missionary. He spent 20 years on the field in the Middle East. And he said that he never felt comfortable enough in a Palestinian setting to tell this story with a Jew as the hero. He said it would have been too dangerous. This is a parable that can get you killed. If you think this is a parable, I'll try to be nice to your neighbor. You haven't read it. This is a parable that can get you killed. It will certainly get you removed from the floor of the General Assembly. So it is the most detestable hero that his hearers can imagine that Jesus picks here. The most detestable, disgusting, despised hero imaginable. A Samaritan appears. And as he journeys, he comes to where the man was. He looks at him, he sees him, and he has compassion, or he took pity on him. There's two types of seeing in this this passage. One type of seeing is the religious type, and it immediately responds with the instinct for caution and self-preservation and concerns about the law. This Samaritan seeing leads to compassion. And not only is the enemy the hero, he shows compassion on a man who is almost certainly a Jew and thus his personal enemy. And so part of what Jesus is saying here is that your neighbor, Mr. Lawyer, includes the most hated enemies you can conjure. And this compassion for this enemy is the turning point of the parable. It connects back to the original love commandment. Love overrides all concerns for purity, for self-preservation, and for financial loss. And in verse 34, you can see what the Samaritan did with his compassion. The, the compassion here that Jesus is highlighting is not sentimental. It's valiant. It's courageous. In verse 34, the Samaritan, he went to the beaten man and bandaged his wounds. The text says he poured oil and wine on them. Oil and wine are materials used in the temple worship. 
and they were almost surely in possession of the priest and the Levite. You can bet the priest and the Levite, when they went to the temple and they came home, they had oil and wine on them. They didn't use any of theirs. The wine was an antiseptic and the oil was for pain relief. Now remember, the Samaritans, they accepted the first five books of the Torah. So the Samaritan man would have been subject to, to some of the same purity concerns as the priest and the Levite. He would have become unclean, but he understood the primacy of love in a way that they did not. And so he gets into the man's condition. He gets bloody and dirty. Now the Samaritan's disregarding a number of things here. He's disregarding the danger of being accosted by robbers himself. He disregards the, convenient, the inconvenience to his schedule. And remember this, he disregards the fact that as a hated minority in the culture, he could, he could be falsely accused of the robbery itself. There's no upside to this from the Samaritan's point of view. None. Only bad things can happen. He then lifts the man and he sets him on his own animal, the text says. Which means that he, the Samaritan, would have to walk. Puts the guy on his own animal. He actually gets the inside of his car dirty with this guy. Now that's true love right there. He gets the, he, he gets the inside of his car dirty. And he brings him to an inn. Now these are not holiday inns. These are makeshift places. They're dangerous in their own right. Probably a simple, you know, sparse enclosure with a place to sleep and some straw and water for the animals. And at the end, we're told in the text, he, the Samaritan, took care of him. He got him to the end, then he stayed. He tended to his wounds further. He wasn't looking to cut and run. He actually spends the night at the inn with the man, which means he calls into work and says, I can't be there tomorrow. I'm taking care of one of these robbers who are always on this road. And you can see that in verse 35. The next day, the next day, he took out two silver coins or two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Scholars estimate that that's enough money for about 14 days' stay at an inn like this. Unbelievable. Costly generosity. Here's 14 days' stay at the inn. And he tells the innkeeper, look after him and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra additional expense you may have. So he, he says, I'm going to pay the extended medical costs and save this man from any debt that he might incur. So that's the parable. We come then to the application. Verse 36, Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Of course, the answer is obvious. The lawyer gives it in verse 37, the one who had mercy on him. Notice this, that even at the end of the parable, the lawyer cannot say, he cannot even say, the Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy on him. The third guy is what the lawyer says. He can't even say the Samaritan. That's how much hate there is 
That's how much disdain there is for this group of people. The one. Remember, Samaritan and neighbor are incompatible. Good Samaritan, as tame and acceptable as it is now, is a complete oxymoron to him. You might as well say, good jihadist. Then Jesus concludes with, you go and do likewise. This is what the love of God and neighbor looks like. You know, Jesus has not technically answered the lawyer's question here. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a parable and says, now who was a neighbor? The lawyer wanted a definition, and Jesus was concerned about who proved to be a neighbor. And so in a sense, Jesus is saying, look, if you have the love of God in you and love of neighbor, you're going to actually create neighborliness. Love, true love creates neighborliness and responds appropriately. And it's to our shame that it's often better shown by those whose theology and history are, from where we stand, deeply objectionable. While we, the Orthodox, sit comfortably on the sidelines. This is the main point of Jesus' parable. The people who are loving their neighbors are the people that you theologically despise. And so here we are, with a raft of questions and caveats and qualifications flooding our heads, I'm sure. What about my family? What about charity that requires some checks and balances? What about my personal safety? What about wisdom and prudence? What about the Samaritan? Was he saved by his works? Are liberal ministers and Muslim imams really obeying the law when they show compassion? Could Jesus be teaching that? Well, there are caveats. But guess what? Jesus doesn't make any of them. He wants the wound to stay open. He knows that we have a mania for self-justification. For doctrinal correctness, you know, and, and an aversion, a natural aversion, an instinct that in many cuts against the showing of mercy. He, he doesn't deal with all the questions. The questions are legitimate. They can be dealt with in another forum, for sure. But that's not what the parables do. That's not how Jesus teaches. He wants us to hear, as he says multiple times in the Gospels, I desire mercy and not your religious sacrifices. And it was Jesus' half-brother who said, the visitation of those in distress is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father. And you can do this and keep yourself unstained by the world. Do you see what the Samaritan in the parable did? Go and do likewise. Amen.